It's Maddie Pryor who starts off the music this morning with The God of Abram Praise. Sutcliffe talked to Giles Fraser about his new book entitled Chosen. In 2011, when the Occupy movement set up camp around St Paul's Cathedral in London, Canon Giles Fraser was caught between his pastoral care of the protesters, the needs of the church and the demands of the City of London. He suffered a crisis of faith and mental health. In his book Chosen, lost and found between Christianity and Judaism, Fraser explores his own religious roots and discovers the healing power of theology for the individual and society. Here's Tom Sutcliffe introducing Giles Fraser. 
chosen. How would you describe it? Is it theology? Is it a spiritual biography? Is it memoir? What? How do you think of it? Uh, I think it's a it's a memoir um, <clears throat> of a period of time after my resignation at St Paul's where I found uh, life quite difficult um, and I tried to sort of work work out what was troubling me and put myself back together but for me in order to do that and you know there was all sorts of things that helped me lots of therapy and stuff like that but it was also an intellectual challenge as to how to put myself back together so I inevitably uh, reached for theology which is part of my language to understand the world as you said right at the beginning in order to, uh, to, to sort of work out what was going on. Um, just for those people who don't know explain what that critic you, you begin like many spiritual biographies do with a very very dark night of the soul what yeah. was it that precipitated that you were you were working at St Paul's. Well I left uh, 10 years ago uh, in October I, I left St Paul's we had a disagreement about uh, um, uh, how uh, to deal with the Occupy protesters and I, and I resigned from St Paul's and I really didn't know what I was going to do with them. And, and that difference if you can do it quickly I know it was a very complicated thing but yeah. what was the Oh, I mean, it, my, my own view, which actually hasn't really changed, is that I, I was—I felt unable to sanction what was potentially violence done in the name of the church to evict the Occupy protesters. Um, and uh, those of us who had to make this decision had a wide variety of different decisions, which actually also have honour and, uh, and need to have voice, but I, I just disagreed with it. Um, and but there was a fundamental theological difference there too, wasn't there, about what the church was? Was it this cherished, valued and sacred building, or was it a, a set of actually quite radical beliefs about how the world is ordered? That's part, I suppose that's part of, part of the, the difference of emphasis. I mean, I'm an establishment figure. I can't pretend I'm not an establishment figure. I'm part of the established church and implicated in all the things that we're, that we're talking about here. And I also, I don't repudiate the importance of buildings because um, I don't think they're the sort of rain shelters and that's it, you know. But, but nonetheless, there was, a, there was certainly a difference of emphasis about, you know, the, the respective value that you would attach to, uh, I suppose, part of the institution and the building and the infrastructure and those people who stood outside the cathedral saying, what would Jesus do? Uh, now, you had a moment of revelation, not on the road to Damascus, on the road to Toxteth. Can you, yes, can you tell us about that? Well, I, I, I felt very lost after resigning from St Paul's and I went for a job interview, actually. To, to, to They asked me for a job interview to go be the Dean of Liverpool. And um, I get there terribly early and I went to uh, a synagogue which I had some vague connection with at the back of my head which is that my great uncle was the person who ran the synagogue for 40 years and uh, there was a great oil painting of him uh, um, and I'd looked at this oil painting in the synagogue and that's what sort of broke through in some extremely puzzling emotional way. I sat down at the side of the road and just cried my eyes out and and, and, and I suppose that the question then it became was, who am I? I mean, where am I from? Um, my, my father's side of the family were Jews going back um, hundreds of years, one of the oldest Jewish families in this country. And uh, the, the war, he, he um, there's the war, as the bombs fell on Golders Green, he was evacuated to Biddeford in Devon, Christian prep school, and really that was all he knew. And uh, they changed their name from Friedeberg to Fraser. There was centuries of trying to fit in. And I suppose I was about the most assimilated you could well, get. You, you, write this, cathedral. you write this line, I had a Jewish father who pretended he wasn't and a non-Jewish mother who pretended she was. Yes. Um, so did you grow up with that sense of confusion or did you feel 
rooted. Well, it, it, it wasn't really spoken about in my home. I mean, my my mum uh, is from working class Leicestershire, and she was desperate to get out of where she was from, and she had this idea of 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 Jews being international and and something more exciting. And when she went to see my um, grandmother for the first time, she said, "Oh my word, they got carpet in the loo." I mean, this was just extraordinary for for, for my um, for my mum, and that's what she wanted. And my father was, in a sense in flight from his, his, his Jewishness. So that's why I, I use that rather neat line about uh, the joke of my family. But we didn't really talk about it. It wasn't something that was talked about. My dad didn't really want to talk too much about where he'd come from. I think it was just painful and was very disruptive and the war made it more so. So I think this thing hit me as something that... Uh, as, as more of a surprise than people might think that it should have done. You know, it's just... My word, I've come from generations of Jews who've tried to fit into this country and now I'm about as fitted in as it possibly could be and it hasn't worked for me. Uh, Is there a, it, was there something in that? That was the question I started. And we'll come back to that conversation in a wee while. A source of inspiration for both Christian and Jewish hymns and songs is, of course, the Book of Psalms. And here's one based on one of the Psalms. It's Psalm 91, Prom praise and safe in the shadow of the Lord.
praise with a paraphrase by Timothy Dudley Smith, a paraphrase of Psalm 91. But now let's hear more from Giles Fraser. That, that line I used at the top of the program about the blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, you actually quote, it's from it's Israeli. Israeli yeah. um, do you think, what did you find on that blank page? What, is there something there that you hadn't expected to find? Well, the, blank, the blankness is the emptiness of me between, as it were, caught between uh, a sense of Judaism and, and Christianity. And do you have to choose, Well, I suppose is my uh, question, or can you remain in that place? So I... I Look, I feel that there are divisions uh, in terms of my, my, my wife is Jewish, Israeli, my, uh, two, 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 my children are Jews. So I live with this tension all the time. And I don't think there's an easy way of resolving it. I, and I don't even want to resolve it in some cheap and easy way. But the one thing I would say that I discovered in my book is that there's not as much new in the New Testament as people think, which is that the New Testament is is so much a continuation of the Hebrew Scriptures, using the language of the Hebrew Scriptures, and we and and I think it's terribly important that we recover the Jewishness of Jesus and uh, and the, and the Jewishness of the ideas that are there in 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 what we call the New Testament, even though that language of old and new is itself problematic. Now, you acknowledge that that taking the best from both is difficult. You write this at one point. The genius of Christianity is its concern for all peoples of the world. The genius of rabbinic Judaism is the ability to leave other people alone. And you extrapolate in a very interesting way from it. You say this. The genius of Christianity is its capacity for multiculturalism. The great danger is Christianity's desire for it. Why is a desire for multiculturalism a danger? For well, you? this returns back to this. This is an idea from uh, Daniel Biarin, who's a, a, a great, a, a great uh, rabbinic teacher at the moment, and and his distinction between Christianity and Judaism is is, is that Judaism has a very is a, is a particular emphasis rooted in in place in 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 people. And that Christianity universalises through St Paul. Now, the, there is a problem with universalising, uh, not unlike, actually, the, the debates we've been having recently about the Enlightenment, actually, which is if you say this is for everybody, that that, that can cooperate with a sense of um, imperialism, that actually uh, our job is to go out and convert the whole world. Uh, so, and, 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 and especially if you want to convert the old world and, and you think that Jesus is white, I mean, and a white man, that becomes, that's, that's exactly but, the seedbed for what Chinny right, rightly writes about, the problems there. But Chinny, so, what, what would you feel about that sense that multiculturalism is a danger? You presumably wouldn't feel that, that it's a, that it's a solution. I, I do think it's a solution, but I think it's um, it has to be authentic. Um, and I think part of the problem is in places where we try multiculturalism, but really what is still dominant is whiteness uh, and often patriarchy. And that's where it gets gets confused. I'm really interested in, in Giles's book because um, of that idea of recapturing Jesus's Jewishness and how much Giles you see, how much do you see that kind of separation as as racism? Um, and anti-Jewishness. Well, it's certainly the case that in the first few centuries of... Look, let's start with Jesus. Jesus wasn't a Christian. Um, you know, he hadn't heard the word. His followers are Jews. And within uh, three or so hundred years, 
um, the, the Jewish Christian experience or the Jews who follow Jesus are almost completely written out of the script of Christianity. It becomes something of the Roman Empire. It becomes something where um, those who followed Jesus who were still in the synagogues are pretty much pushed out. I mean, they're pushed out from both the Christian side and from the developing synagogue side as well. So they're, they're both they're written out of the script. But there is evidence, there's some evidence that for quite a long time, I mean, even perhaps until the 10th century, there are um, uh, Jesus followers who are Jews who repudiate this sort of empire. They have very scurrilous things to say about the Emperor Constantine. They feel very, very persecuted. But there's a case to say that this sort of very early Christianity, before it got muddled up with empire, is really a sort of, and I use this word cautiously, but there is something authentic about this original sort of Christianity, which was very sort of specifically rooted in, in place. And Giles Fraser was interviewed there by Tom Sutcliffe. The big difference between Jews and Christians is that, in general, Jews do not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but Christians do. However, there is a small minority of Jews who do believe that, and singer Helen Shapiro is one of them. Here she is with a medley under the title, It Is Good. Among the songs are, I love the Lord because he hears my voice, you shall go out with joy, and when the Spirit of the Lord is within my heart, Helen Shapiro. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O oh God most high, to proclaim your Shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills shall. 
shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you. There will shouts of joy and all the trees of the field shall clap, shall clap their hands. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Trees of the field shall clap their hands. Trees of the field shall clap their hands. As you go out with joy. When the spirit of the When the spirit of the Lord is within my heart, I will sing as David sang. I will sing, I will sing, I will sing as David sang. I will sing, I will sing, I will sing as David sang. When the spirit of the Lord is within my heart, I will dance as David danced. When the spirit of the When the spirit of the Lord is within my heart, I will praise as David praised. When the spirit of the Lord is within my heart, I will praise as David praised. I will praise, I will praise, I will praise as David praised. I will praise, I will praise, I will praise as David praised. La 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 la.
Kenneth McKellar and the choir of Paisley Abbey with George Matheson's O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Malcolm Geint has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 26. It's followed by Ubi Caritas by Darufle. Where there is charity and love, God is. Sung by the choir of Trinity College, Cambridge, Conducted by Richard Marlow. A response to Psalm 26. That I may find my peace in all he wills, I call on him in faith to judge for me, since my own judgment fails, and all my skills in reckoning forget his clemency. For when I judge myself, when I judge others, I do so with a false severity. He has a far more patient love, that gathers all his lost and fallen children home into that habitation where he mothers, fathers and befriends us, where the same love is lavished on the least as on the greatest, and he welcomes all who come to him. I may have shunned them, but the son who died for them knows better than I do. Oh, let me see with his eyes from now on.
Milcombe Gate was followed by the choir of Trinity College, Cambridge, under Richard Marlowe, with part of Durifle's Ubi Caritas. Elaine Brown is an author and a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Elaine has produced a series of talks for us on hymns which mean a lot to her. Today she thinks about the significance of Graham Kendrick's song, All I Once Held Dear. On lockdown Sundays, and sometimes during the week too, hymns and songs have come to my mind, and then I've recalled the story of the hymn perhaps, or a personal link with it. This has been a valued part of my faith journey over these months, so I thought I'd share some of these songs and hymns with you. Today I've chosen Graham Kendrick's expressive song, All I Once Held Dear. Let me tell you the background to my choice. It's a family story. We had twin boys, Stuart and Murray. Murray became restless as he grew up and left home in his late teens. He qualified in electronics way down in the south of England, but he had a rough time. He got into unhelpful company and he just started to drift. It was very worrying for us, his parents. One Sunday, we had a phone call from him. He was desperate. Friends lived in the area, so we rang them and they went straight to Murray and took him to their home and looked after him and loved him. And in time, he began to go to a church nearby where he was also welcomed and cared for. And so Murray's faith journey began. One day, he asked Jesus to take over his life and lead him from then on. Time went by. Murray got a very good job designing mobile phones for Nokia. He met a lovely girl called Linda and they planned their wedding in a country church way down in the south of England. The service began with a song Murray had specially chosen. And as I stood there at the front of the church, looking at Murray and Linda, the words moved me deeply because they described much of what Murray had been through. I'll read the first two verses to you. All I once held dear, built my life upon, All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now. Compared to this, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Some of you will know that Murray died in 2019. He had asbestos cancer, 
possibly linked to his rough days. Murray suffered bravely in the final months of his life. And as I turn to the last verse of Murray's song, it holds deep new meaning for me now. Here it is. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, and so with you to live and never die. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Love you, Lord. And that was Elaine Brown, and it was recorded and edited for us by Larry Gentis. Now, as you might expect, here's Graham Kendrick and his song, All I Once Held Dear.
song which means much to Elaine Brown, Graham Kendrick and All I Once Held Dear. Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he's Caleb, who was sent to spy out the Promised Land and brought back a positive report. My name is Caleb and I'm from the tribe of Issachar. I'll start with a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? We were promised the land of Canaan by our God when he freed us from Egypt, so here's my story. You see, the God who created us, well, he fights for us. We were only able to leave Egypt because he fought to free us from Egypt. I've seen him with my own eyes put a wall of fire by night and a cloud by day to keep their army away from us. Then he separated a 30-kilometer stretch of ocean, making a path of dry land for us to walk over to the other side. And when the Egyptian army pursued us, God closed the waters on them, drowning the lot of them. There's much more to tell, but time fails me. When you have God himself fighting for you, where's the problem? Now, normally when you go on a spying mission, it's a question of assessing the enemy's power to see what military and civilian resistance there's likely to be. I said normally because these times are anything but normal. In preparing to take the land, Moses ordered 12 of us to go and spy it out. His orders were clear and precise. Go to the Negev, then walk up the hill country. See what the land is like. Are the people strong or weak? Are they few or many? Is the land good or bad? And how are the cities? Are they open camps or fortified? Is the land lean or fat, with trees in it or not? And lastly, please get some of the fruit of the land and bring it back with you. When we returned, ten of the twelve spies gave a bad report to Moses. Well, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are in, living in the hill country. The Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. I couldn't believe my ears. It was as if they only saw the challenges and completely neglected the fact that our God was fighting for us. I mean, did they just expect to dance into the land, jovially announce to the inhabitants that, well, we were taking over, and they just smile and start moving things into wagons and go into exile? Uh, to say I was angry with them does not quite express it. So I quieted the crowd and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But just as quickly as I'd finished, they answered, we, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. The land through which we have gone, in spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. You know, the sons of Anak, they're part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Uh, yeah, I suppose someone becomes how they see themselves. The people listening were persuaded by them, forgetting the power the Lord had shown in getting us this far in the first place. They were even going to stone Joshua and me. At that moment, God showed up. Suddenly, the brightest light you could imagine appeared in the tent of meeting. He said to all the congregation, 
All the earth will be filled with my glory. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet will put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Well, now forty years have elapsed, and only Joshua and I are left from the original Hebrews who were told to enter the land. Once we'd started the invasion... I approached Joshua with this request. May I take the hill country of the Amorites, where the sons of Anak are? He understood perfectly well why. Forty years ago, ten of the spies wilted in fear because of the giants in the land. Huh, that was the land I wanted. Joshua, like myself, understood that if God is for us, no one can stand against us. Wouldn't you like to have God fighting in your corner? Well, all you have to do is ask and believe. This comes from Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And we'll leave you with an instrumental this time as Chris Barber and his jazz band play He's Got the Whole World in His Hands.